This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. Stand and Deliver! Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast Episode 3. My name is Rodders, I'm a stand-up comedian and the promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club up above Smoking Billy's Rib House, smack bang in the centre of Reading. In case you missed the last two episodes, it's a little peek behind the curtain into the strange world of stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians. We'll be chatting to comedians who have come through the doors and performed at my comedy club and some of the amazing acts I've met on my own comedic journey around the country. Today's guest is the incredible Paul F. Taylor, as was the title of his 2014 Edinburgh show. That's when I first saw him uh, do a preview in Basingstoke, it was. But before we get on to that, a couple of bits and bobs. Uh, please leave us reviews on iTunes. A couple of you have been doing so, and some of you have even been posting about this on Facebook and stuff uh, to get people tuned in. And it really, really helps because uh, I'm up against the big boys who have normally like BBC radio stations behind them or already have uh, uh, a comedy career on the television. I'm just little old me. Uh, I'm actually sitting in my bedroom right now. Uh, No fancy uh, London-based production company is helping me out. I don't need them because I know I've got you lot, the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast listeners, the most discerning podcast listeners in all of podcastdom, if if that is a word. It, It is now anyway. But I thought I'd tell you what I've been up to. Um, I was lucky enough to compete in the quarterfinal of the Amused Moose National Comedy Award. Now, if you're not uh, not in London very often or or, um, or just haven't heard about it, it, Amused Moose is a big comedy promotion in London. It's been going for years and years and years. Uh, runs big comedy club nights uh, on the weekend around Soho. And uh, it was really exciting just to get through to the quarterfinal, to be honest. They packed out the Karma Sanctum Hotel in Soho, which is very swanky. Um, Myself and the other competitors had five minutes to impress the voting audience who wrote their scores down after each of the acts. And there was also an industry panel of people as well. And um, usually... I don't like competitions. I've done I've done a few of them, probably not as many as I should have done. Um but I, I've I've very, very rarely enjoyed them. Um I think it's just the added pressure because it's not like you can't try harder to be funny in the way that in, in sports you can train more and you can run further. I mean you can gig more and you can focus more on the writing, but it's it's a very, very different thing. It's like trying really hard to get to sleep. Um, you, that doesn't work. You have to have, I don't know, a good sleep routine. Uh, that's another thing I need to get better at, <laughs> comedy and, and sleeping. Uh, not at the same time, though, although I could be opening up a whole new genre. Uh, Rodder's sleep comedy. Sleep gigging. <laughs> Has anyone ever sleep gigged? Write <laughs> uh, in now. Um, info at rodders.com is my uh, email address. Um, oh, dear. I should never have given that out. Uh, but yeah, normally it's it's just the added pressure, and a lot of that is perceived. If you just the healthiest thing to to do, and all the more all the experienced acts that I've talked to about this have always told me, 
Just make sure you know your stuff and treat it like any other gig and enjoy it. But it's so hard to enjoy something when you've got it in your head. Oh, this gig matters. I better not fluff up my line. And you get up on stage. And I mean, I, I, the competition I did before this was, I think back in October, was uh, the New Comedian competition at the Museum of Comedy in London. And I, I, I was really tense <laughs> going on stage. And it just, especially when my, my style is quite loose and silly and a, a little bit of ad, often the odd bit of ad-libbing chucked in it doesn't work if I'm all stressed out uh, so I decided to arm myself against this and I was determined to have a good time I made sure I was prepared I gigged absolutely loads I went to bath earlier in the week and I made sure my diary was nice and full leading up to it and then I went up to London early and did a spot at an afternoon comedy gig called uh, Coffee and Comedy um, which is uh, near Tottenham Court Road and uh, excellent, lovely little gig run by some nice folks, uh, Jack his name is and it's just, it, it's zero pressure, it's uh, a small room of comedians mostly trying out new stuff and uh, mostly some, and there's some very, very new acts there as well. So I they very kindly put me on quite last minute and I did my competition five and that gave me a, a confidence boost and then I could wander over to the Karma Sanctum Hotel uh, and not have to rush. So already I've given myself a confidence boost by gigging enough. I'm not rushing, I'm not late. So by the time I got to the uh, the venue for the competition, uh, I, I was I was a little nervous, but mostly I was just excited and I was happy to be there and uh, I, I was feeling energised and I was feeling quite good. And uh, I can tell you, it was such a fun gig. Uh, Daniel Audrit was emceeing, very, very good comedian, also does a lot of writing for television. And uh, as he called my name and I walked down the aisle, everyone starts looking at you, everyone starts clapping and cheering. That's an amazing feeling to get to do a full room on a Saturday night. And uh, I really think I gave it my all. I didn't go through, and obviously I would have loved to have gone through, but I really think I just hit my limit as a performer that night, which rather than being discouraging, makes me think, right, good. Well, I've done as much as I can this month. Now here's some things to work on for the next couple of months. So I left Soho feeling actually quite happy. And that is the first uh, competition I've ever um, I've ever actually enjoyed, even though I didn't go through. I had a fantastic time. And I think I learned more from doing that five minute set. Uh, than I did in, uh, like, I don't know, a month's worth of gigging. Now, there were a couple more interesting things that happened at this uh, competition gig uh, that I'm going to tell you about, including me meeting Hills Jager, who is, uh, well, she is the mastermind behind Amused Moose, and also, oh, I got heckled by the sound technician. But I'll, I'll tell you towards the end of the podcast, because we better get on with uh, the main point of this podcast, which is my interview with Paul F. Taylor, an amazing act. He headlined the Standard Deliver Comedy Club back in August. His style is a fast-paced whirlwind of surreal, wonderfully silly ideas and characters. And, uh, well, this interview nearly didn't happen uh, thanks to me being an idiot. We were due to meet at uh, Reading University's Student Union where he was due to perform at a gig. And, uh, well, the directions he'd been given sent him to a car park on the outskirts of the uni campus. So I thought I'd be a hero and I sent him the post 
postage code to the student union, although it actually turned out to be a P.O. box owned by the student union. Uh, so uh, Paul ended up phoning me from an industrial estate um, about 15 minutes drive uh, from the university. But it was very nice about the whole incident. And uh, in fact, he, he does have a subtle dig at me uh, about that in the interview. So see if you can spot that. Uh, but we talk about all things comedy wise. He's, he's one of these performers that uh, you see him on stage and it just looks like effortless nonsense because he's, he's so well versed in in doing this kind of thing but you actually see he takes his silliness pretty seriously and has a hell of a work ethic uh, so here he is paul f taylor this is the stand and deliver comedy podcast i'm with paul f taylor you all right yeah i'm good thanks excellent you played my club august august uh, last year and the first time i saw you it was your show the incredible paul f taylor it was in 2014 in Basingstoke at my friend Immy's That Comedy Thing. And, like, the thing that struck me about it, it was all... The, the setup was you were a comedian who was taking drugs at these pills in order to, supp- to suppress your comedic urges, and you were being a business guru, and then halfway through, you ran out of pills, hulked out, ripped the suit off, and started being a comedian again. Yeah, that was the idea. Yeah, I tried to have a filmic premise to what is... Uh well, I, I think I get a bit bored when people just do stand-up. So I think there should be more to it. So the, I decided to have a filmic storyline. Because what's, what's interesting, it's kind of, it did sort of blend comedy and theatre in a way that kind of... It was a really nice setup to write, now here's a great excuse for me to do all my club stuff. And yet it kind of... Which comes first? The, all, all the material and then the sort of theatrical treatment? or Yeah, the material tends to just occur to you when you're writing. Like, that's, that's what I do all the time, I suppose. I'm always like you know they're the funny things that you say to people in pubs and then you go oh yeah that'd be quite good and then uh, the sort of the theatrical part of it is when you really start thinking about doing an hour show and like that frames the sort of stand up it's about framing it in the right way I think I don't really know so that was Yonks go that's why it, what sticks that in my mind so what's the the, the, the framing for the next show oh well uh, I'm not entirely sure I've worked that out yet uh, at the moment I'm still just putting the stuff together I've got an idea for an ending so it usually comes from that you, if you've got an ending you're going to be alright because <laughs> it's, it's sort of observational style but it's, it's too surreal to be put you in the observational camp if someone booked an observational comedy night you would definitely be the alternative one or the one that was most left field out of all those sort of acts yeah I'd agree with that I think it would be middle spot would be usually where I would be because uh, you almost need to have the tropes of stand-up defined before I go on you almost have to have someone who's a normal comedian I guess or more normal than me I can normal it up for sure (laughs) I'd prefer to be more odd Statues remind us of what used to be, don't they? Historically, what used to be, what used to be. Oh, historically, it's great. Like, you know, sometimes you'll go in like a Chinese restaurant and you'll see a a statue of one of those cats just doing that. Yeah, that reminds us of before we had cat flaps. Yeah. It was it was interesting the when you were pretending to be a business guru because at one it was sort of we had to leave the room we all then came back in and you were strutting around shouting at everyone to be successful at one point you opened the window yelled at someone and then does it give more context to the comedy do you think your comedy makes more sense in an hour long setting than when you're say doing a club set like tonight 
Yeah, I think you can you can stretch your legs a bit more of an hour. You can you can work out what you want to do a bit more. I think you really define what it is that you do from doing hours rather than confining to the rules of a club. I think in a club you're set your time is so sort of brief and you've really got to get a, get stuff across like quick. But when you're in a, an hour it's your own thing. You can just do whatever you want. And I think you can get away with more. Like, there's no way anyone can leave. So they, they may as well just, just like, strap in and enjoy it for an hour. But, but still, you've, you've got to, they've got to trust you, haven't they? They've got to, you've got to build that trust. Yeah, you've got, to, you've got to start strong. You've definitely got to start strong. Yeah, make sure that you do whatever's funniest first. Like, that whole beginning that you were talking about with my show, that took a long time to get right, because a lot of people would just look at that and go... What, what, what is this? Like, why is a guy dressed up as a, in a suit telling me that I need to be serious? Like, that doesn't, that didn't work in previews particularly well. But then when you get it in Edinburgh, everyone goes, oh, okay, I get it. You're pretending to be that guy. How much do you just listen to your own comedic gut? Because you hear a lot of comedians go, say things like, well, I'm just going to do what I find funny. And if they can, if they're going to go with it, then great. If not, then sod it but there's got to be a balance of how much you listen to them how much do you listen to your gut when when planning out these sort of things yeah i agree i think there are some people who are far more bold than me they take more risks and are more willing to do things than i do but i think you need to just test everything if you believe it's funny you should just do it but whether or not it does get a laugh you only find out from doing it in clubs and that's at the end of the day you've you've got to get a laugh there are some people that do stuff and they're like, well, I believe it's funny. And they're just doing it to silence every time. And you're like, well, you know, maybe you need to have a look at what you're doing. <laughs> like maybe that's an art form rather than comedy. I think it's a fine line. I mean, there are some things that are just a tiny word or a sentence away from being something really brilliant. And it's really hard to sometimes get it there. And sometimes you can have a really good idea in your head and it doesn't quite reach it to everyone else. It doesn't trans. There's something that doesn't bridge the gap between what you're thinking of and what the audience are projecting in their mind. And it's how you communicate that is often the problem. I think if you've got the idea in your head and you think it's funny, it probably is. It's just how you're getting it across. So do you work with someone when putting the show together? Because you can get stuck in your own head writing and it's very hard to... Yeah, I mean, I, I sum up your own stuff. My uh, my wife, I spend quite a long time talking about my stuff with. I do sketch stuff with her as well, and so she is a sounding board for everything. But it is my own pursuit. I have like other friends like me up, like Nick Hodder's a good friend of mine, and we always talk about stuff. But it is your own thing. There are times when both of those people disagree with me, and they're like, "No, I, I don't think that's going to work." And I'm like, "Well, I'm doing it anyway," and invariably they're usually right. But, yeah, I do think you can't have enough people that you could chat to about what you do, especially if there's someone you're close to and they get what, the kind of thing you do. Some people don't always get what you do, and it's important to surround yourself with people that believe in what you do so that if you do say an idea, they'll go, oh, okay, I can see that working. Cats are always annoyed with us, you know, and I think the main reason why that is is because we don't call them by their full name, which is Catherine. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're out of time. I didn't think that was going to be the joke I ended on, but fuck. <laughs> so at what point do you think a comedian earns a right to say, well, it was the audience's fault? 
does that never ever because I've banned myself from saying that until I'm going to give myself at least two like 2,000 gigs I'll let myself do it once a year because I think that when I used to do it I then thought well actually the act after me wasn't that different to me yet he got a better response so maybe I'm at fault and the audience didn't turn up against me so maybe I should look at it well, but do you think a comedian will ever earn that right or not? Uh yeah, uh, I don't like to ever blame the audience because I think there's far too many factors and I think it's so many things that can come down to a gig not going well. But invariably, 90% of the time it's you, I think. It's something that you're not addressing or something you're not doing right. And it's something you, if you had the gig again and you did it differently, you could have done better. I think there is very few ones where I go to and I, it goes badly and then I'm like, well, there's nothing I could have done differently and that, that would have always been like that. And in those ones, you do tend to go, yeah, it's the audience's fault. But, you know, sometimes you need that. Like, no one tells you that as a comedian. Like, you do need to have a gig where the audience don't get you because then it, it reaffirms your desire to do what you do more. You're like, well, no, I'm right and this is what I think is funny and they were, they were wrong. I'm not saying that the audience is at fault sometimes. Sometimes it's just they're not the right type of audience in the room for you. So they could be the right audience, but just not for the right comedian. And I guess if you have a, a very mixed room and you realise only a certain section, maybe they've got green eyes and they're all in their 30s, maybe that's your audience and that's the niche you need to cultivate. Yeah, I think you need to be really... When you're doing your stuff, really listen to where your laughter's coming from. Because if you've got two people that are laughing so hard and no one else is, just aim it at them. It's, it's clearly for them what you're doing. And it's, it's not up to you who laughs and who finds it funny. But it, it is up to you to keep doing it if people do laugh. Yeah. Thinking of talking back about doing the hour-long show, the thing I liked about it because it had a, a bit of a theatre which was novel and that drew me in, and then it was just like seeing a very very long but enjoyable club set, and it just simply. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying well that was just entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's strange when acts try and go beyond. If an act aims to be fun, anything other than funny first. I think it's, it somehow becomes dangerous when an Edinburgh show starts with a political point. I mean, if one sort of sneaked in cleverly, you think, yeah. oh, well, I learnt something. But if suddenly... I mean, it's a really bad... I've asked such a long question, I've forgotten what I was asking. No, no, I think I know what you're getting to with it. And I think I agree. There are some people who have a point to their shows and they're trying to say something, and that's fine. That's what they want to do, then so be it. But I'm very much of the idea that that if you're doing a comedy show, it should be funny for an hour. And I think a lot of the things I've chosen to do, I've done almost to try and lampoon some of the tropes that people do in Edinburgh shows, you know, because they're trying to do a show that says something rather than being funny. And uh, I, I will not, not apologise for that. I think if, you, you, if you're not being funny... Um, I think you're maybe not working hard enough because I think there are some shows that have a point and they are funny and that's amazing. That's something I've never worked out how to do. I've only ever just gone for being funny. If you can make a point as well as be funny, well done to you. But if you're compromising being funny to make a point, then I, I don't agree with that. I think there are too many people that get away with saying, you know, things that 
that people will go righteously, yes, I agree with that, but they're not actually really being very funny with it. Can we blame the whole industry machine a bit? Because there is pressure from awards to have a narrative arc, as they say, in your hour-long show. So do you think that is making people shoehorn what would be a very nice... Because I, I, I wouldn't go to an hour-long show of very, very good, just straight stand-up and think, oh, well, I wish he told me a story about his dead dad. Uh, yeah. Yet that seems to be how the awards look at things. Yeah, it's... I mean, I can't tell you how the awards people look for what they look for. It seems every year there's a different thing that, that everyone's looking at, and that seems to be the issue that they're pushing, and they'll go for a show that, that's pointing at that. Uh, I... I don't know. I, I, I almost think doing Edinburgh is a separate thing than doing comedy on the circuit. I think years ago it used to be you'd do the comedy circuit and then you'd go and do a show in Edinburgh and that would be, uh, it would be like a sort of uh, a trade show for what you do for people to see. Whereas now I think it's almost a separate thing. I think like you can do a show in Edinburgh and there are people who only do, do shows in Edinburgh and they don't work in clubs in the year. So they're not even doing the sort of the circuit like doing these gigs like I'm doing tonight um, and it's almost a separate thing now you don't need to do clubs and you don't in a way you almost don't need to be as funny I guess um, I don't know it's, it's hard to say uh, I think it will change I think there will be a point where they'll go look we just want a show that's funny this year and that will happen like people like Matt Ewins his show last year was just incredible and it was just really funny. It was just joyously funny. It, it'll be someone like that that wins the award soon. But, I mean, Matt Ewins is probably already going to get the opportunities that he needs anyway. So, in a way, like Edinburgh, the award is what it is. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. I guess you do get successful comics that barely even go to Edinburgh. and that yeah. You can still make, make a living of it. Where, for you, does comedy take place? If you just think, in your head comedy is it in a club is it in somewhere like this is it where where is comedy for you yeah i always think it should be in a room where it feels like you sh you're getting away with something being in there like the best gigs i've ever felt is when it's a small sweaty room and there's more people in there than there should be and it, you can hardly breathe because it's so warm and then there's loads of comedians stepping over audience members to get to the stage and it's just and everyone's drunk and it's raucous. That's kind of comedy to me. That's how I remember it when I started out. And I think when you get too pristine and precise and clean... Like, I like theatre gigs. I like them, and I think they're fun to play and they're different. But for me, comedy is that little dirty, dingy room. And it's, it's connecting with people really closely. Is that because you want a bit of a sense of danger? Because if everything's laid out perfectly, the odds of something going wrong or a heckle is minimised, whereas in a dingy bar somewhere is it, is it, is it anarchy do you think Actually, comedy needs no, a bit of anarchy or not I don't, I don't think it is anarchy that's what I'm going for I think it's more just an audience uniting as a thing like when they're in a huge like the O2 or something like how can they unite as a group other than doing a Mexican wave or something yeah. like that it's not like you're not gonna, you don't feel like you know the people around you and you're connecting with them if you're in a small space and you're seeing comedy truly and you're seeing the nuances of what someone does on stage, that's far more interesting and it really unites an audience far more than seeing them on a big screen in a big stadium. And that's exactly why I can't watch it on TV because I know it's been edited. There's no sense of jeopardy and you, you can't feel a stage presence through, through a screen. Yeah. Uh, just, but is there... So the low-key kind of exciting gigs are great, but was there, there must be a few that you thought, 
well, this is madness. This has gone too far. Have you ever had a few? There must what be a few mean, of those. Like crazy gigs? Like they've, what, they collapsed? Yeah, or just in a place that's completely unsuitable. I mean, I was oh, booked yeah. to do a brewery and they sat everyone. They, they, they had the, they, it was the first time they'd done comedy. Um, but they thought, right, we're going to have a stage. Good. We're going to have lights. Tick. We're going to have speakers. Tick. So they've already done, outdone most first time comedy clubs. And then they sat all the audiences at benches opposite each other. And I said to the promoter, they're probably not going to be listening. They're going to be looking at each other. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, well, where are they going to put their pints? And the gig was chaos. I ended up standing on a table and I hosted an impromptu car boot sale because it was the only way I could cut through the rabble. And they made the mistake of giving me a wireless microphone. I think I went outside and bothered the people in the smoking area. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was fun, but I just thought this was just engineered for anarchy. Yeah, there's loads of mistakes that people make all the time in gigs. And it's a really, it's a, there's a real skill to setting up a room to make it work. And having people sat looking at each other is one of the cardinal sins. <laughs> Don't do that because they're not looking at you, they're going to look over their shoulder at you. And like, that's not comedy, you need to be focused, you need to be looking at the performer, there needs to be lights, it needs to be. A, a dark room with bright lights on you and it needs to be a proper PA and everyone there has to want to see the comedy they can't like be forced into it like a lot of these works do force people in and they're like they want to get off with Tina and accounts they don't want to listen <laughs> yeah. to you telling jokes about orange juice it's yeah it, it amazes me how many times I see it go wrong but it happens I, think, I, I, I specifically remember one though I did a charity thing in a huge vast uh, it was basically a shopping centre and I was on a plinth and people were just walking past and expecting me to do jokes as people were walking past and it was just it was awful it was, I mean it was really awful I mean you knew it was going to be awful I, even reading the email I remember thinking that's probably going to be awful I probably shouldn't do that <laughs> but you'll always turn up right <laughs> yeah and then I turned up and went oh yeah this is really awful that was horrible it took me a long time to get over that one <laughs> friend of mine Simon Kane has a great joke he says that comics would be the easiest people to kidnap send them a postcode and they'll turn up to any basement in the country yeah well <laughs> make sure you get the right postcode um, yeah it's true as long as we we trust anyone uh, and we'll get in a car with any old random person will stop and go, oh, I've got a gig, I'm giving you a lift somewhere. It's, yeah, it is weird. We'd be very easily kidnapped. Good point. It is, um, we're going back to theatricality and comedy. I've seen you in a load of ads. Did you do acting before you did comedy? And then you thought, well, I'll use acting to spice up the comedy. Or did, it, did you learn the acting later? No, it was something I started doing when I was doing comedy. People just started asking me to do things. And my missus is an actress, so she's kind of coached me to some degree. But it's all learnt on the job. Mm. And it's been, to be honest, a lot of people poo-poo doing ads, but I've learnt loads doing them. And it's like, I now know, I understand the technical aspects of doing, performing in front of camera in a way that others probably don't now. And, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I've, I've learned doing it, which is, which is fun, I suppose. Yeah. It's weird, people feel they have to apologise for doing stuff for ads, and it doesn't, like, it's just, it's all part of the job, isn't it? And if you, yeah. if it helps bulk out doing that, and that means you can then, I don't know, finance a whole Edinburgh show, or what if it means you can have a, I don't know, heaven forbid, a nice life? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I think it is poo-pooed a lot, but I, I think there's... You've got to look at it in the right way. I mean, when I'm in ads, people aren't going, 
oh, there's Paul F. Taylor endorsing something. They're just going, oh, here's, there's that guy who's doing that thing. Like, I'm, it's not like I'm a famous person who's suddenly now endorsing a product. I'm just cast as a guy who's in a thing. And frankly, I'll take that money because then it enables me to do what I need, I want to do. And it, it, it also gives me writing time. You, like, you don't have to take the horrific gigs if you can fall back on the money from somewhere else. So I can do ones that I can actually push the agenda of what I want to do artistically. So, yeah, I'm quite... I'm pro them, to be honest, but, you know, not everyone feels the same as me. I think people get annoyed with the overexposure. Like, there's certain comics you see on TV, then you see them on TV again, but in an ad after the, the, their own panel show, and you just think, how much money do they actually need? What are they... What, how many swimming pools are they building? It's yeah, peculiar. Well, I think a lot of comedians are just fearful that the money's going to run out and it's going to stop, so they'll just take anything while they can. I think that's what that is, more than anything. We're all paranoid that we're all going to stop working next week. That's true, isn't it? Because if you're well paid for a year, it doesn't make up for the two years, which would be more difficult. It's true, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even if you have a great year, you're always constantly going, whoa, is next year going to be as good as this? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough. It was really interesting seeing you do a club set after I'd seen you do a full-on hour-long show. Yeah. But... If you, practicality's out the window, if you can have the world your way, comedy-wise, I'm not asking you to become prime minister or anything, that's right. a bit like admin, but if you could have anything your way, would, it, would you just carry on on the course you're on now, or would you take your hour-long shows to more, more theatres, or would you get a whole cast together, or do something? Uh, I don't really know, if I'm honest. I don't try to put too many... I don't try to think too hard about stuff because if you put in your head exactly what you think you want, invariably you, you don't achieve that. I think it's best to just take what, what comes to you from what you've done. And I personally do enjoy doing clubs, but I also do enjoy doing my shows. I will take, my, I will take an hour show on, on tour. Um, I don't know, just do what you... Do what you do. What makes you feel like you're doing your art? I suppose. So f- yeah. I, I can see as much. I enjoyed the energy of a club gig more than anything. Um, but I also enjoy doing an hour-long show because, like I said, you can stretch your legs. So I would do both. <laughs> Is that answer the question? I don't know. Yeah. No, I guess one informs the other. Yeah. And uh, actually, one more thing I've got to ask about: double acts. Because you're in a double act. Yeah. Yeah. Short and curly, the double act. Why are there so few double acts? Yeah, I think there's a number of factors. Fee splitting is, is hard. You know, you don't get paid much as a single person. To split it two ways is difficult. But also there's, you know, uh, if you're in a double act, you've got you to write with the other person all the time, and then life gets in the way a lot easier. If you're doing it on your own, then it's so much easier to just sit and write your own stuff and come up with your own things. And it's only you who has to get to a gig. And I think if you're with someone else and you're doing a double act, you're spending so much time with another person, it's going to start getting tough. So, yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, with mine, it's quite easy because uh, we live together, so we pick it up whenever we're just around each other and then do it and then pick it up again and put it down and pick it up again. It's quite relaxed. We're not, like, we don't push it hard like other people do. You know, each has... I think everyone finds their own equilibrium of how to do it. 
when you're on stage as a double act, how easy because you can ad lib on your own quite well because there's no chance of you throwing off the other person. But how much do you have to keep the script just because there's a structure, a sketch, and there's another person, or is it? Because you've got the chemistry going on, is it possible just to you can just snap out of it and ad lib when you want? Yeah, it used to be really scripted, and I'm quite an ad libber. Like I do like to go off on tangents, and we've now we've been doing it long enough that we get how each other works. Rebecca's quite an actress, and she follows her lines quite. Well, she used to follow her lines straight. Now she's matching me with her improvs, and. As long as we hit any cue lines correctly, that's the main thing. If we've got any sound cues or anything for a technician, that's the main thing you've got to get right. But usually we're quite comfortable with the other person improvising and we can just work on it. Paul F. Taylor, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. So that was Paul F. Taylor. Fascinating chap. Fascinating chat. Uh, for more on him and where to find it, I've turned into Alan Partridge. <laughs> uh, for more on Paul F. Taylor, go to paulftaylor.co.uk. On there, you'll find links to all his social media and uh, you'll be able to find out where you'll see him performing next. You have to see this guy live. Um, and uh, check out the... Uh, obviously, you all like the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club Facebook page. Of course, you do. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Stand and Deliver Comedy Night. And uh, there could be a Paul F. Taylor related announcement. Uh, so stay Stay tuned to that page, if that phrase even makes sense. Uh, now, yeah, just uh, before I played out that interview to you guys, uh, I was telling you I was at the Amused Moose quarterfinal, the new act competition, and, uh, well, I got to meet the famous, albeit infamous maybe, Hills Jager. Uh, Hills Jager is the booker and promoter of the Amused Moose comedy company. And she's well known in the comedy circle because she's just she's been booking gigs for ages and is very, very experienced and was kind of booking Jimmy Carr when he had just started. So she's given um, a lot of comedians you see on television now their first break. And she's very, very well. And she's very well respected running a comedy club. uh, I can I can really appreciate uh, the kind of work she has to put in for it. And uh, she used to be a school teacher. And you can really tell she's very, very strict. And uh, so you walk, you, I walked into the, the uh, basement room we were in where the, where the gig was. And immediately she goes, right, go, go sit in the front row. And we, we all had to sit in the front row. And then we all had to get up on stage one at a time and do a sound check, which is novel. You don't normally sound check. You don't normally sound check comedians unless they're musical. But I actually think it's it's a, it was a great idea because uh, most comedians or a lot of comedians I see they don't know how to hold a microphone. They don't know how to use them, which is fine if you're playing rooms of like eight people, uh, you know, like a Tuesday night open mic in the middle of London. But I mean, if you're going to do a proper room, you need to know how to use a microphone. Otherwise, they aren't going to hear you and they're not going to laugh. And so you, everyone one by one got up on stage and Hills critiqued your microphone technique. And uh, I, I was very proud to say, she didn't give me any comments on that. And uh, I think I even said after, if I go out of this competition, uh, which I did, uh, it won't be because of my mic technique, uh, believe me. Uh, but, oh, while I was doing my mic check, I got heckled uh, by the lady who was doing the sound. The sound technician heckled me. I did something I'd often do when I, I used to produce an interview show on a radio station and to put guests at ease while I was checking the microphone level before we recorded a show, um, I just asked them an easy question. What did you have for breakfast? because I just needed them to talk. It doesn't matter what they said, I just needed them to talk coherently for 10 seconds while I twiddled uh, the volume controls and all that lot. So I just got up on stage and told them that uh, I had two slices of toast and um, 
uh, to uh, Weetabix. And from the back of the room, you just heard the sound tech go, That's too many carbs! Um, I mean, I, I hopefully that the people weren't thinking, oh God, is his set going to be just about what he's having for breakfast? I suppose even for us stand-up comedians, it is the most important meal of the day, although most of us don't wake up in time for it. On that poignant note, I better wrap up the podcast just before I do. Uh, time to give you some highlights from my very own gig diary, should you want to uh, uh, <laughs> come see me uh, generate some humifications for you. On the 5th of March, I'll be at the uh, Comedy Night at the Iron Duke in Stratford, say, and I've just been booked for something that I think is going to be absolutely mad. It's called the uh, longest running comedy show it's at rock the attic uh in banbury and this could be my chance to be part of comedy history because they're going for the official world record attempt there's a world record they want to beat to become the longest running comedy show it's starting at 6 p.m on the 29th of march and will run through right till 6 p.m on the 2nd of april absolutely uh, ridiculous Don't worry, it won't just be me there. Um, In fact, kicking the whole thing off is Marlon Davis. You might have seen him on Live at the Apollo. He'll be starting the the whole proceedings. uh, And who else? It's a star-studded event. Paul McCaffrey's going to be there. Russell Hicks, who's uh, been at the Standard Deliver Comedy Club. Uh, See, see, that really does prove that I'm an all-right booker. Uh, Andrew Bird is also going to be there as well. Uh, Loads others. Uh, I will be performing at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on the Friday and then uh, later on in the Friday I'll also be performing at 20 past 10 at night that's a nice slot to have uh, but I think the uh, the 2am one <laughs> they're gonna be uh, somewhat merry I think so uh, uh, come see me struggle uh, see if I, I make it to my 20 past 10pm slot um, <laughs> oh, it's gonna be a lot of fun uh, for more information on and a link to buy your tickets for that because you a day ticket to go like dip in and out of the shows for the entire event it's just 15 quid absolute bargain uh, just go to rodders.com r-h-o-double-d-e-r-s.com and click the button that says gigs right at the top there's links to buy tickets and the next show at the stand and deliver comedy club is on thursday the 8th of march it's headlined by the great bald magician el baldino uh, you can download uh, the episode two of this podcast where we interview him and uh, well he's kind of a tommy cooper-esque mad magic act and uh, absolutely ridiculous in a very good way and the whole thing is going to be compared by will duggan who's a, a fantastic act rachel sambrooks brings her brummy uh, humor to the proceedings and it's going to be a great show lots of great acts a nice variety uh, go to facebook.com forward slash stand and deliver comedy night click on the book now button buy your tickets get over to reading so that'll do that's the stand and deliver comedy podcast uh, my name's been rodders and i'll see you on the next episode Bye.